We want to concentrate on the story that we're telling. And now after having done it a few times, been at this rodeo a while, we know that when we finish with that project, we will lift our heads up and it will resonate in the present. And it can be the Vietnam War, it can be Prohibition, it can be the Civil War, it can be baseball, it can be jazz, it can be about race, it can be about politics, it can be about money, it can be about art. It's always going to sound like the present. It's going to, Mark Twain is supposed to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So there is the great literary hero of Hemingway telling you the secret. It's just rhyming, Bryn. It's just the rhymes. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of Tourist Information. My guests this week are co-directors Ken Burns and Lynn Novak, who have a new film out April 5th on PBS about Ernest Hemingway. Uh, you know their work, of course, from the Civil War, uh, Vietnam, baseball, jazz, Mark Twain, and on and on and on. Incredible classic documentaries. And this is one of them. Um... This holds up Ernest Hemingway to the light and I think offers an opportunity to recontextualize him and deconstructs a kind of separation of the man and the myth, looks at issues related to Hemingway that I think can recontextualize him with nine major concussions, being blown up when he was 18, which led to chronic insomnia, PTSD, uh, Dr. Andrew Farah, a forensic psychiatrist, said that Hemingway was, quote, a textbook case of CTE. Um, the artistic legacy that confronted toxic masculinity, whereas Hemingway increasingly today is a kind of emblem of that. Um, as early as 21 years old, he took on date rape from the perspective of a woman. And a few years later, Hills Like White Elephants, he's looking at abortion from the perspective of a woman pressured into abortion by a callous boyfriend. Um, so I, th I think it's just a really fascinating film and departure from the stereotypes about Hemingway. And as we're increasing, trying to increase our understanding and compassion and extend the boundaries for people, it's interesting how we've been increasingly doing the opposite with Hemingway. And I think this film will be something special just to, to give another look at the complexities of a man that Truman Capote said was a, a closet everything. And his wife, his first wife, Hadley Richardson said, there's so many sides to him, he defied geometry. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Lynn Novick and Ken Burns about their new documentary, Hemingway, on tourist information. It's, it's interesting because so many people hope to adopt him in that regard, and so many people want to build, therefore, structures from that. And it was just interesting to be leaning a little bit the other way by yeah. the inclusion of that comment. Well, I, what I love about the film is just you create such a rich dialectic and probably more than a dialectic of allowing all these voices to chime in and people can respond. I mean, I noticed in the little comment thing, talking about some of my experiences with Cuba and immediately somebody yeah. pushes back and says, yeah, it's different. they want freedom. It's yeah. not about the richness of this. And I'm like, well, I'm not trying to explicitly address <laughs> the mandate of the Cuban people. Like I'm speaking to visiting the Cuban people, but you, you can't win with certain people? No, you can't. You can't. No. Well, that's because we hope it's more than a dialectic, but some people are forever caught on that dialectic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
you want to transcend it, which is what art is supposed to do. Well, and I, and I can't wait to see where you're going to go with Muhammad Ali, speaking uh, of complexity. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's equally as complex as, as this film. At uh, least, at least. I, I didn't work on it. I've just seen a rough cut, but I'd say it's at least, if not more. You know, because I mean, you've got you got his treatment of his wives, the infidelity, the nation of Islam, his 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 uh, saluting George Wallace for his segregationist ideas, because you should be separate. If somebody doesn't want you to move into their neighborhood, you shouldn't move in. Doesn't that seem stupid that you would move into their neighborhood? You know, he's like mm. he's he's this id. And at the same time, one of the white sponsors said, you know, if the nation of Islam, well, what do you think about him joining and have he, has he lost sponsorship with the joining the, yes, 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 a million dollars, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, you know, what do you think about him jo uh, joining, uh, becoming an Islam, a, a, a Muslim? And he goes, well, you know, most of us believe that a man's religion is his own, right? He should have his own beliefs. And which is a wonderful thing for this guy to say. And, he, and they say, well, but it, but it's a hate group. And he goes, well, if it's a hate group, then he's not a black Muslim because there's not a hateful bone in this man's body. And, and, and that mm. is true. And the love that comes out from this guy, even when he's doing bad things. And then towards the end of his life, he refers to a tallying angel who's been keeping score. And so the regrets about Frazier, who refused to accept his apology, understandably, the regrets about Malcolm X, who was murdered by his friends, and, and women. And so the last 20 years of his life, he is incredibly faithful, a devout Muslim. I mean, just, it's, it's, um, it's an amazing story. We will get you a link to that when we've got a, a, a link. I'd love it. Well, um, well in advance. So you can watch it on your own and you can write snarky things from the side of <laughs> participate in the kind of evenings that we hope to have or whatever it is, you know? Well, I, I would love to join in. One of my closest friends in New York was Ali's official biographer, Thomas Hauser. So uh -huh. uh, I've had a kind of behind the curtain about mm. what that experience was like <laughs> to write that film. And wow. uh, Mark Cram wrote one of the great biographies. Yes, he did. Ali. And we, well, we, we quote Mark a lot. And, and in fact... Yeah. We got to know, Lynn and I got to know Jonathan Eig uh, uh, back during our Prohibition film. So dating back to like 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. and, and, and he's just stayed with us through Jackie Robinson and now Muhammad Ali. And so he would even come to these, you know, session, editing sessions where we're going through page by page, where normally you say thank you very much to the consultants. And then they go and then you spend a week. He spent the entire week watching our grass grow and our paint dry, which was just yeoman. Sir. And then every once in a while, he'd say, I'm not sure I'd agree with that. Or you could say it this way. And you go, wow, that's good. Thank you. You know, uh, fascinating. Yeah. Um, on, to, on to Hemingway. Um, I guess to begin with, was there something, what was the most unexpected feature of working on this documentary about somebody so well known and examined for both of you? Well, I, I, I think butting in front of Lynn, as I almost always do, um, that it's the, it's the surprise at the complexity that you, that you know is always there with every human being, but that with someone with such an outsized personality, such an outsized image, so an outsized kind of celebrity, an outsized role legitimately in our literature, that, that we would then come to know dimensions upon dimensions upon dimensions of him privately, professionally, artistically, humanly, sexually, all of those things were as gobsmocking 
as if somebody came and said, well, I read the uh, old man in the sea in high school. So yeah, what's this guy about? Right. You know, I mean, literally we're, we, we had to somehow reset ourselves to zero. And then what's, what we've been filled with is so dynamic and so complex and so, um, confounding in a good way. That is to say it defies the normal dialectics of, of, of how we like to talk about literature or human beings or sexuality or, you know, goodness and badness. And, and that to me is just, wow, you know, it's just, thank you. What a privilege, what a privilege, you know, to be able to dedicate as much time as we've been able to dedicate to something as, as enriching because of its confounding complexity. And Lynn, for you? Yeah, I'm not sure. I agree with everything Ken said. I'm not sure I can add anything as um, comprehensive. Um, but in listening to Ken, I was sort of thinking, well, what, what else would I have to say? And I, to me, it's the way we got there to this understanding in a way was rereading Hemingway, reading things I hadn't read, certainly immersing ourselves in the letters, getting to know the scholars and the family, and then the photographic record, You know, seeing him from a little boy to an old man and kind of matching up the, the, the images with him at different times in his life and hearing his voice. That's how we kind of got to the place that Ken is saying of just appreciating this complicated person. And we, you know, that's, that's our process. So it's not new for this project, but somehow I think because his public persona is so powerful to really feel like we got past it through this process of making the film was a profound um, enlightening experience. And I, for me at the end, I, you know, I started the project admiring his work, being fascinated by his life and not really liking him very much. Mm. And by the end, I certainly found certain aspects of his life very disturbing. And his, you know, parts of it are hard to see and watch and think about. But by the end, I felt a lot more compassion for him and his struggles than I had at the beginning. And even the other day I was thinking about, you know, he behaved so badly to so many people and making the film made me not just take that on face value, but think about why. Why would he treat people so badly? Why would he be such a jerk? Why would he be so insensitive and self-involved and all those things? And what is that, you know, what's underneath that? So the film gave us an opportunity to think about those kind of questions and not just kind of check the boxes. He could be a great writer, but he wasn't a very good person sometimes. Yeah. And then, and then you're, you can easily dismiss him rather than say, well, this opens up areas of vulnerability and insecurity and other pathologies that are, that are utterly human and familiar to all of us and, and could be part of that compassionate response. There are reprehensible aspects and you can still say that, but it doesn't mean you have to completely dispose of Hemingway as a result of those reprehensible actions. I wanted to ask you, I was thinking about this last night after, after our conversation and uh, the director Ezra Edelman was interviewed about OJ Made in America and was asked like, what was on the cutting room floor of that film? And it was CTE. It was interviewing experts who were testifying to all of these years of football for OJ, how much of a possibility CTE was in his story. And Edelman said, I didn't want to go anywhere near that because it would let him off the hook for his bad behavior with women and the murder and everything. I wonder with Hemingway, you've created this kind of gestalt of eight or nine major concussions, the PTSD going back to at least when he's 18, 
40 years of prodigious drinking, which certainly looks like self-medicating more than sort of a braggadocio masculine crutch or something like that. Um, then the family history with depression, suicide, how much might this mitigate um, our appreciation, for, not appreciation, but our compassion for some of the bad behavior, the self-destructiveness, the suicide, like how much could this recontextualize him from, from the audience's perspective, do you think? I don't know. I don't think it's my responsibility, our responsibility to leave stuff out. Our cutting room floor is abundant with uh, interesting and wonderful stuff. But I, something as significant as CTE as an argument, I couldn't say this is going to let him off the hook if it was in any way a real possibility. Now, I have no idea what the evidence is with OJ. So I don't, I can't be the director of that film saying I didn't want to let him off the hook. What we can know is how significant these episodes were in Hemingway's life and how his behaviors in many ways parallel the expressions of that kind of trauma in other people across the board as a medical phenomenon. But never once do we even cop to that. We just say, this is what it is. And it's really complicated. And, and you've got all of that, you know, gestalt as you put it, but you know, to my mind, he's like furiously on horseback trying to outrun, you know, a set of banshees on their own horses coming after him and it's all the things that you list so we're not saying it's one thing or the other but we do feel compelled obligated to honorably list those things yeah i mean i you know it's, it's um really interesting question we would never presume to let anybody off the hook for anything but giving a fair representation of their experience seems the right thing to do and the the the, the evidence of the brain trauma was relatively new in Hemingway scholarship. Uh, this um, psychiatrist and writer, Andrew Farrer, wrote a whole book called Hemingway's Brain in which he really traced all these concussions and what he presumes the effect. And that was enlightening to us, but it doesn't mean that all the other factors aren't there too. And we'll never know, we'll just never know. Right. And that's okay. But he certainly had something wrong with his brain by the end. I mean, he seems to be really unwell. That's very clear how much of that he inflicted on himself and how much of that was just accidents. I mean, it almost doesn't really matter. I mean, right. I think the self-destructiveness right. is there long before there's a brain injury, running off to war, you know, all kinds of risky things that he'd like to do and enjoy doing, kind of being on the edge physically that can cause damage to yourself. I, I think that's exactly right, that we are so determined today to find an answer. And that I think, if anything, Hemingway's writing is so instructive of the great mysteries and gaps and impossibilities and um, these, these things that happen, you know, that, you know, it's going to, we're strong in the broken places, but you know, if you're none of these things, it's going to come and get you too, you know, but there's no explanation for it. It's unexplained. It's all out, out in what's not said. That is so, you know, so profound, so profound. I went back after we spoke and I was just going through um, uh, a farewell to arms and, you know, just bumped into that, you know, phrase that we use and went, wow. And then went back and found the other one about, you know, sacred and, and honor and valor and just, yeah. 
you know, and it's what's not said. It's 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 the it's leaving you with the mystery. It's like a Zen koan in another form, you know. And that's what art ought to be doing. You know, what is the sound of one hand clapping? You know, well. <laughs> and I also don't think if if we didn't have a lot of his early short stories that we we probably wouldn't have had J.D. Salinger as we know him. Mm, absolutely. There's so much Hemingway in that early stuff, isn't there? I love the what we know about the relationship between Hemingway and Salinger. It's, it's so beautiful because he's so mean to so many other young writers and so dismissive and so sort of um, threatened. And for probably because of Salinger's talent and just the fact that he was in the service and a variety of reasons, he was really nice to Salinger. Maybe he recognized that. another recluse. Maybe. <laughs> um, but that's a beautiful moment of generosity on Hemingway's part that we don't see all that often in the context of other writers. Um, I wanted to, one, one of my takeaways from this film, I don't know if you would agree with me, is that Hemingway would have been a superbly gifted user of Twitter and also Instagram, because it seems like he used the social media of his day for exactly the same reason that a lot of people use these two apps. Um, the, so that element of using his art to do ad hominem attacks of people, uh, Fitzgerald in the snows of Kilimanjaro, Gertrude Stein in the green hills of Africa. Um, I just wondered if you, if going through this film, assembling it, if you saw some elements of Hemingway that were very modern, that were way ahead of the curve in, in sort of where we are now. Like, I just felt like that line that Capote had that he was a closet everything. In some ways I thought Hemingway was a closet millennial. Like th there are many features of him that would have existed very functionally right now, as much as he's kind of in his era of the 1920s and that sort of thing. I, I don't buy any of that. Mm. I, I think that uh, history doesn't repeat itself. We're not to condemn to repeat what we don't remember. Lynn found a quote when we were working on prohibition that from Ecclesiastes that said what has been uh, will be again, what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. And that suggests human nature never changes. Um, therefore, like Claude Rains in Casablanca, I am shocked, shocked to find that a person in one era has aspects of things we recognize in human character in the others. I'm actually not sure he'd be on Twitter. I think he's a, a reclusive. I think he wanted to listen to his music and, and, and he, he took that bile or that opinion or whatever it is and put it into his art when he was writing about it. But there are similarities. What, what Lynn and I have you know, vowed, if not to each other or even openly, but certainly acknowledged after the fact is that we want to concentrate on the story that we're telling. And now after having done it a few times, been at this rodeo a while, we know that when we finish with that project, we will lift our heads up and it will resonate in the present. And it can be the Vietnam War, it can be Prohibition, it can be the Civil War, it can be baseball, it can be jazz, it can be about race, it can be about politics, it can be about money, it can be about art. It's always going to sound like the present. It's going to, Mark Twain is supposed to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So there is the great literary hero of Hemingway telling you the secret. It's just rhyming, Bryn. It's just the rhymes. Lynn, for you, was there something resonant about how he well, used his art to... <laughs> I mean, I, I think the self-promotion 
is that, you know, he was determined. I think um, Leslie Bloom said the other day, just, you know, fanatically devoted to sort of creating his own persona and getting himself out there. And so he would have used the tools that people have nowadays. So he would have been probably on Twitter and Instagram or YouTube or whatever. He might've had his own show. I don't know. Like he, he was definitely very much comfortable with and using the tools that were available to him to, um, you know, uh, I don't know, commodify himself in a way. Yeah. But and so, he, and he, so is Twain in the 19th century. And I'm working right. on a film on Benjamin Franklin. And he was the perfect okay. guy using all the tools of, of the print shop and the almanac and the aphorisms right. and the humor and writing false letters from people under different names to make points. Yeah. This is this is as old yeah. as, as human beings. It's Ecclesiastes, nothing new under yeah. the sun. It kind of, for me, exactly, it goes to this, you know, the the visual representation of him, how he represented himself, presented himself to the camera. Very interesting. He wore glasses. You would not know that. There's almost no photographs of him with his glasses on. We found a few by Robert Capra where he has the glasses kind of like half off, but he, and we have a little footage of him taking his glasses off. So he, that's just an act, a very conscious act of, I'm going to present myself to the camera, to the public in a certain way. Oh, and yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I just, you know, the glasses would have connoted a kind of a different image of Hemingway than the one that he wanted out there. And that's just a yeah. small detail, but it just speaks to his conscious use of whatever was available to him, not to mention the typewriter, needless to say, but in this other way of, you know, being out there and having opinions. I, I'm interested in that the political dimensions because he was so consciously trying to avoid being political right. for a lot of his career and a lot of pressure to be political in the 30s. And he really resisted that and felt like it would affect his art and he shouldn't make a political statement. And then as the depression got worse and he had firsthand experience of what you know, um, corrupt politics in his mind could do, he, he sort of began to take a stand. So I think that's an interesting you know, for like the role of the public intellectual and how he saw himself in that. And by World War II, he's, you know, a gung-ho. Um, Interventionist. Thank you. Right. No, it's, it's a really good point. I'd say it's not so slow. I don't think he's resist. I think he initially resists and right. then he flips the switch and he's writing for the new masses and he's narrating and writing a film by a communist filmmaker. And he's, you know, going off to fight Soviet, uh, a, a government that is supported solely by the Soviets. I mean, it's just... Amazing after coming out with a kind of reactionary libertarian reaction to some New Deal stuff in South Florida and reacting to the new masses criticizing him. And he correctly says good art is not good writing is not left or right. But then he it's almost through that insecurity or vulnerability that he then suddenly becomes like a leftist champion, you know. It's 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 an amazing it's an amazing thing. I think that political dimension is not spoken of enough. Yeah, I love the way you you fleshed it out over the different periods of the film as he kind of evolved or walked between the raindrops at times. <laughs> well, you know, as you said, as the copious file that uh, J. Edgar Hoover had on him, and there he is in his last days certainly certain that the government agents are following him and are going through his files and going through the bank records and stuff like that. And then you realize, you know, it's all, it's not a continuum. It's a circle, you know, he's, he's, he's done a couple laps on that political track, you know, in the course of his life. And that means he's, he's questing all the time. He's searching all the time for what, who he is, which is a pretty admirable thing to keep that energy 
going until obviously at some point he reached that place where he wasn't doing that anymore. And I think, you know. And kind of amazing that he's not radioactive for some of the choices that he's made, hasn't he? I mean, the association with Cuba has never tainted him in either country with the U.S. or Cuba. They both want him. They both want to claim him. This is the transcendence of great art, I think. Mm. You know, it's 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 what, you know, it's um, Mary saying after reading Old Man, you know, I forgive you for all the rotten things you've said. That's what it is. It's just, you know, you can't, how could you be angry at, um, angry at someone who describes the rain so well, right? You know, I mean, the people who are for rain or the people who are against rain. And there's a kind of absurdity in my argument, but a deliberate one, because, you know, that in the end is what these, these sort of factions that get so invested are like. It's going to rain, and sometimes it's not going to rain. Mm. One of the things I loved about this film so much that I think is going to promote so many interesting conversations is your approach to Hemingway's masculinity as an artifice. But in the art, we see a lot of him deconstructing masculinity, a lot of him pushing back at toxic masculinity as a major theme where he's taking big risks at publishing things or trying to publish things that were unpublishable. So I, I wonder what it was like to encounter that for both of you. Did you know that going into this film or did it evolve as you encountered the material? Um, I mean, a little bit of both for me, I would say on some level. Um, I don't think I had really thought about it in the way that you just said until we were deeply invested in making the film. And, but we were interested in the question of his masculinity from the beginning. And so asking the people we interviewed to you know, explore that with us um, and I think it, you know, we, we had internal discussions about which of his works to include and obviously what the things we chose have some to do with what questions we want to explore. So up in Michigan is a piece that we talked a lot about at the beginning, are we going to put it in or not? You know, it's very early. How much does it say to us? And when Edna said she wanted to talk about up in Michigan, it became, okay, that's going in because she had something so important to say. And because it's so seminal, so early in his career that he's doing exactly what you're saying. And that goes so far against the grain of what the public perception of Hemingway is. Um, and then reading it and rereading it and reading it again, really, and thinking about it, him writing that as a young man who probably had seen or experienced or had encounters that, you know, he, he was familiar with this dynamic, I'm gonna guess. I mean, I don't know that, but I just have that feeling. And so him trying to, you know, show why this is not okay is really, really powerful. And I think that sets up the whole thing you're saying that he's not just a tough guy, but he's really interested in how that goes so badly wrong. And I think that he comes by that macho image, however much he invested in it, used it as protection, he comes by it honestly. He really does know how to hunt and fish and do all these things. He is drawn to that. And at some point, I think we always make the mistake of blowing past it and then presuming that it's all an edifice and all a facade. This is stuff he liked to do. And it gave him pleasure to be alone in the Michigan woods or in the high uh, hunt country of the West or out in the boat or in Africa. Um, 
And, and so I think that then we turn this into a kind of cipher that makes it hard to understand and, and, and use this as, ah, this is the facade because he's really about these other things. I think he's both. I think he's, you know, I think he is that. And I think he is also perpetually conscious of that other thing. And maybe it's from his mom, maybe it's from his sisters, maybe it's from all of these things, or maybe this is just some unexplainable gift of of him of, of realizing that he had to bore down on every one of these things and question all the assumptions you know i mean he talks about getting over agnes with a few uh girls that he rushes violently as a kind of cauterizing wound so he's horton in up in michigan oh. right and so then he writes a story not from his point of view about macho conquest he writes about the toxic consequences of macho conquest, of not being able to hear the other, a, a same kind of conversation that's gonna go on in a little bit more rarefied and, and sophisticated way in Hills Like White Elephants, but no less you know, overwhelmingly pushy. This is an amazing ability because who knows, maybe he was in a situation like that, urging an abortion on somebody, but to be able to be, he recognized he recognized the thing, you know, I have an ancestor, the poet Robert Burns. He said, oh, it's some power, the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us. And for all the blindness that we can quite easily attribute to Ernest Hemingway, he does a hell of a good job of seeing himself and all of these potentially toxic, were, is our overused word, but other sort of negative forms. And my God, you know, what was the experience that permitted White Hills, uh, like I mean, Hills like White Elephants? What, what, what was it that created up in Michigan, right? I mean, it may be just as Lynn is suggesting. It may just be an abstract thing where he just said, "I'm going to write about this and and write it from a different way because I can think about that." Just as Lynn earlier is saying, I suddenly had to wrestle not with the with the yes or no of Ernest Hemingway, but try to understand where it came from and try to have compassion. Maybe he just said. As a, as a writer, I wish to have compassion for this dynamic. I don't know. But so much of what he wrote about came from real experiences. Right. That's amazing to me. Yeah. Uh, for, for both of you, I mean, speaking to that, as he's going through his personal life, he's always blurring the line between his art and his own identity and life in ways that seem to enrich both. Um, but it, it seems unavoidable that this man and his art have generated more tourism and pilgrimages than any other writer who's ever lived, that at least that I can think of, certainly any modern writer. I wonder why you think 60 years later, he generates that impulse of people want to drink where he drank, eat where he ate, stay at the hotels, view his room, view his homes. What is it about this guy that continues to maintain its relevance for so many people around the world? It's a really, really good question. And it's absolutely true. I mean, I, you know, it's, I think it's the visceral, the beautiful luminous powers of description that he has, mm -hmm. that these places that he describes and experiences that he describes feel so real. And it is, it's magic really on the page. So, and not, it, it's, uh, so you really feel like you are there already. And then I guess you just want to go there. And there's a certain romance and glamour to it, even if it's, something ugly that he's describing, there's something almost mystical that happens. So, you know, I, I, I can't think of a place Hemingway wrote about that I don't want to go to. <laughs> and I've been to quite a few 
and I could, I would like to go back to some of them, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, quite extraordinary. There's no other, I can't think of any other books I've read where I feel that way. So, and we're not the only ones clearly. No, no. I, and I, I think it was, we gave the answer to that's in the first comment in the film by Michael Katakis, even before you hear from Hemingway, he's just writing about human experience and he's so good at it that it's, it's an elixir. It's a tonic. It's an invitation. And that because you have this kind of bold faced life and a tragic ending, all of these things, then the stations of his cross, and it really was, you know, an arduous trek to be Ernest Hemingway, um, become important to go to. But it's just, you know, is it Stratford on Avon? No, but it's a different kind of thing, right? You're admiring somebody's able to work in the human psyche in such an extraordinary way, but place is really divorced from it. But place is everything in Hemingway and the human psyche. So you get you get all of that. So I don't know, you know, it's it's a it's a it's an invitation, and that's why I think there's a kind of universality and immortality to the to this person's work that permits us and maybe you know to go have a drink at sloppy joe's or the floridita or even to paddle on a michigan lake might be some superficial version of this it's nonetheless because the siren song of literature art brought people there and i i think i mean look at look at uh, you know john mccain his whole life is governed by a, a fictional character he, he defined his life in the context of Robert Jordan and his opponent in that election also is a huge fan of the same novel for whom the bell tolls. That's pretty, you know, and it, I don't think it's just American. We've met enough people from around the world to know mm. that it, it doesn't stop at our borders, even though we're so proud of a certain Americanness in the descriptions that we can see in Twain and we can see in a new way and it's this and it's hard boiled and it's got this kind of, but at the same time, Russians dig it, you know, and, Japanese dig it and Africans dig it, you know, and South Americans dig it. It's just, that's, that's that. I want that recipe. <laughs> it's funny. Cause I remember meeting a guy at a party named Moses Fleischman, who was a member of the Abraham Lincoln brigade. And mm -hmm. he must've been 85 or something in 2002 when I met him and little by little, cause I was, I was giving away books and one of them was a Hemingway book. And he said, I, I met him over there in Spain. I saw him over there. I saw him in Orwell and everything. And I thought, who the hell is this guy? Is he crazy? <laughs> and you can look him up on Wikipedia. No, he's like one of the mostly New York Jew intelligentsia right. who joined that brigade. And Hemingway turned it into this Montana professor. That was not the kind of people in the United States <laughs> joined. <laughs> but it was well, much more palatable to the readership. Well, mm -hmm. well we, we understand a little bit of the antecedents for that literary decision. Right. <laughs> right. True. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, it was hard watching this not to think about that today children's number one aspiration is towards fame instead of any accomplishment mm. or occupation. And Hemingway's obsession with fame, with sort of literary supremacy and that kind of thing. We also seem to see the corrosive effects of that ambition, as we're seeing today with the highest incidences with kids with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. How did you approach celebrity in relation to Hemingway's story in this film? That's a good question. 
Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it just comes along with the story. We definitely, I mean, I remember in the first line of the proposal that we wrote, it was, he lived his life at the tragic nexus of celebrity and art or something like that, something pretentious like that. But the idea that that was sort of a central theme we were going to explore because of what you just said. Um, I don't think I fully understood just how famous he actually was. I really didn't get that until we started working on the film and how famous he still is to your point about the travel and the, the, you know, the, the pilgrimages people make. So how does a writer get that famous and what does that mean? And I, I, you know, seeing what happens to his art as he gets more and more famous and sort of more self conscious in a way, I guess, you know, and sometimes parodies himself and sort of is caught with this persona that then becomes in, you know, infects the work. Um, it, it's not a pretty story. I, I, someone told me a quote um, the other day that John Updike said, celebrity is a mask that eats into a man's face. Whew. So that was really well said. I, I think that's exactly right. It's nothing we set out to actually tame. It's a wild Mustang, you know? It just is, it's, a fun, it's, it's, it's um, present in the story, but I, I don't think you can ultimately uh, figure it out and describe it completely accurately other than to understand how corrosive it, it was for this person, uh, apparently. And, you know, in, in some ways you see him running away from it, but he's already created the monster, uh, the avatar, as Tobias Wolf said, giving name to our second episode, um, that, that is, is going to be consuming. And so it's just a, it's a force. It's just like, you can't corral, you can't corral the art aspect of it. You can just go, Whoa, was, that was an amazing sentence. And we we turn to each other and go, you know, you you'd say it for two years and then Jeff would say the same, Jeff would now read it and it wouldn't be the scratch voice. And you go, Whoa, that's a great sentence again. It's suddenly new in a new way. And I, I think in a, in a perhaps darker context, the celebrity functions that way, uncorrallable, but, but operative. Yeah. Yeah, it seems at once like a blueprint for some people and also a cautionary tale simultaneously. I hope so. I hope so. I, I firmly believe in the toxicity of the celebrity culture and the meaningless of it, that you're famous for no reason other than you're famous. And at least this person did great art, so maybe deserves in some way some notoriety. But, you know, it's it. no wonder there's such unhappiness. His, we can kind of, the his pathologies are, are pretty obvious and don't necessarily come from celebrity, but come from other deep seated things, perhaps, you know, planted well before that moment. Uh, I'd say that was the least of it. But we see today how just not being famous is uh, somehow some terrible deficit for people. And, and that's a very sad commentary. I, I wonder just last question, because I know you got to go. Um, I was thinking about the Hemingway thing that it ends the same way one of the other most famous artists in the world ends with Van Gogh, uh, who had no notoriety of any kind, assumed that he was going to be completely obscure forever, that none of these paintings would ever be seen. Um, what is it like for you to deal with somebody who's hyper famous versus somebody who had like an Emily Dickinson kind of thing? Like, is it more fun to expose the unexposed life as it was lived or to have, like you had so much archival in this film that I'd never seen before. Mm. So I just, I wondered 
bringing out somebody who's a little more obscure, somebody this prompt, this much of a foot in the 20th century? That's a great question. I don't know. I can't, I don't think I can really answer that. I mean, it just is what it is. Um, you know, the tragedy of an artist dying alone and unrecognized and then being discovered later is, is quite a story to tell also. Um, so th that would be a great story to tell. This, that's not this one. This is I, I worked yeah. for a while on a film about Emily Dickinson, didn't have anything to do with its authorship and was stunned at how complex and interesting it was. But I think I would cop to the fact that just that celebrity is, is a pretty interesting dimension. You know, whether it's Mark Twain or it's Jack Johnson or it's, you know, other people that we've treated. Um, I'm not saying that you can't go in and do that it, because Emily Dickinson would, would be an extraordinarily worthwhile topic mm. and, and expertly intelligent of you to, to bring that up. That's exactly right. Or Van Gogh. But, um, you know, there's something very American about Twain and Hemingway and, and, and that's our beat, you know, we're, we're just sort of, these are people that have, you know, both embraced it and been betrayed by this thing. Yeah. It was, it reminded me of something that was said about Andy Warhol by a critic. He's the most American of artists and most artistic of Americans. And somehow we don't see either. Mm. And there's something about that with Hemingway that works in a similar way for I some reason. I agree. Thank you so much okay. for your time today. This has been this has been great. I hope so. That's so great. Thank it's so you. wonderful. Let's do it every day. Okay. <laughs> Bye. All right. Take Thank care. You. Thanks Good. a lot. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>